0: A few months ago, we studied through the first letter to the Thessalonians and Acts chapter 17 tells us how Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, brought the message of Jesus to the city of Thessalonica around the summer of 51 AD. It was Paul's custom when they would go into a city. I mean, can you imagine walking in where there are no Christians and no one has heard about Christ or not a full explanation? And you're going to start almost from scratch well his pattern the apostle paul's pattern was to go to the jewish synagogue and he would he went there Acts 17 tells us in thessalonica for three consecutive sabbaths and during that time and it says that it summarizes his message saying that he was showing them that jesus was the christ that jesus was the messiah and the response is very positive uh, men women, Jews, Gentiles, many believe. But there's opposition to such an extent that Jason, who is a man who's a new believer in that group of Christians, uh, basically is brought before the civil authorities and they are going to next arrest Paul and Silas and Timothy. So Jason and others get Paul and them out of Thessalonica under cover of darkness. They move on from there. They go to other cities and ultimately end up in Corinth. And after several months have passed since they were in Thessalonica, Paul sends Timothy back to uh, to the new church there, to the new group of believers, to find out how they're doing. Well, the journey and the time there would have taken perhaps as much as a couple of months, first and last, so when Timothy returns, he brings a good report. They are doing very well in their new faith. But they are suffering, and they are facing opposition. The same opposition that had arisen when Paul was there has just continued, and it gets worse. In fact, we know from the writings in history that the Roman persecution of Christians, which ultimately culminated with, with uh, crucifixions and with burnings and things like that, really began in the region of Thessalonica. So whether this is just the precursor to that, we aren't sure. But they're going through a hard time. So in the first letter, Paul had instructed them about the return of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. But Timothy reports back, after he reports back, more is heard that the Christians now back there, some have misunderstood that. They think Jesus is coming tomorrow. So they were quitting their jobs. And they were sitting around waiting, waiting for the return of Christ. So in this brief little three-chapter letter of 2 Thessalonians, Paul gives them some correct instruction about the return of Christ. I've put here the entire chapter. It's just 12 verses. We'll look briefly at this before we come to the Lord's table. Hear God's word. Paul, Silvanus, and that's uh, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, now may you use this as a means of grace to cause us to have a proper estimation of our relationship with you and as we contemplate when you return. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins this letter as he customarily does with a with a greeting. And he mentions Silas and Timothy, Paul's the head of that missionary team. And at this point, as I mentioned earlier, all three men are in the city of Corinth. And he compliments them. In verse four, he says that they are growing in their faith. These, These compliments the people in Thessalonica and in their love amidst experiencing persecution and affliction. Now, before I go any further in the passage, I want to summarize very briefly Some of the theology of trials and suffering in the New Testament. You will know what I'm going to to say here. These are not new things, but they're they're cherry-picked from the New Testament that when you are, or if you are, going through difficult times, even opposition, even persecution, these are some of the things to remember. First, God provides hope and love in suffering. He provides hope and love in our suffering. Romans 5.3 says not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. So God provides hope and love when we suffer. Secondly, problems help us trust in God's sovereign purpose for our lives. You know Romans 8.28, for we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So our problems, our suffering, our afflictions help us to trust in God's sovereign purpose in our lives. The third principle on suffering is that suffering enables us to comfort others. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God? So, God comforts you when you go through difficult times so that for the purpose of you being able to comfort others when they go through theirs. And you comfort them with the comfort that you've been comforted with. So when you are going through a difficult time, or if you are going through a difficult time, then one of the questions to ask yourself, and it may seem completely foreign and irrelevant at the moment, is what is God doing in me that will help me help someone else later? Because God is comforting me in my affliction so that, according to this passage in 1 Corinthians, I'll be able to comfort others who were afflicted with the comfort god has given me so it almost like it overflows and multiplies in that direction fourth our eternal reward outweighs any of our suffering in this life the second corinthians 4 after cataloging some very difficult times paul says for this light momentary affliction light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. So our eternal reward far outweighs our suffering. Fifth, suffering may be confirmation that we are living in Christ. That's what's said here in 2 Thessalonians in verse 5. This is the evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. So rather than saying, well, this must be a sign I'm not walking with Christ. No, suffering may be the confirmation that you are. Trials also, another principle, they help train us to be more faithful and fruitful. Hebrews twelve eleven. for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then last of all, problems help to make us mature. James wrote, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so it builds maturity. In verses three and following, Paul writes to them and he expresses gratitude, first for their faith and love in verse three. Uh, their faith, and he uses colorful words, your faith is overflowing. It is, it is a growing love. It is increasing. It's like the picture of a plant that's spreading out. And we often think of love for others as either I, I do or I don't, all for own. And yet in all of our lives, as we grow in our faith, our love for others should increase, especially for other believers. <clears throat> so he equates a growing faith and growing love. That's what he compliments him for. Spirituality is difficult to measure. Do You ever try to measure your own spiritual maturity? Uh, We can, wouldn't it be nice, you know, hey, as a child is growing up in a home, often many parents will mark their height, put the date by it, and they say, look how much you've grown this past year, and look how much, and you can go back and see right there on the door, the door frame, uh, somebody's height chart. Wouldn't it be nice to be in the church and be able to say, here, there's old Joe over there. How's he doing? Well, I think he's down here. Well, he might be up here. Well, how do we measure these things? Well, we can look at character traits in a person's life, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, so forth. We can also try and evaluate skills in our own lives. Do I know how to pray? Do I know how to read the Bible and interpret it? Do I know how to explain to another person how they can know Christ? Do I know how to use my spiritual giftedness for his glory? There's a... One today that I think is given more attention, and it's, it's dangerous, a of, of measure of spirituality, and that's knowledge. Of how much you know about the Bible and how much you know about theology. Now, we're to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And studying theology, we all ought to know as much about God as we can. On Wednesday nights, I'm teaching the Westminster Confession of Faith, and I'm loving it. It's highly concentrated, some of the purest theology that's ever been written in the English language. But what does Paul tell us in Corinthians? He tells us there in 1 Corinthians 8, Concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge, what does knowledge do? Speak to me. Puffs up. You ever seen a puffer fish? You catch a puffer fish and it blows up like a balloon. He's saying it puffs up. Another translation in the American Standard is knowledge makes arrogant. We're all for knowledge. We should know as much about God. We're to know God and his ways. What I'm trying to say is just knowing a lot of scripture and knowing a lot of theology in no way equals spiritual maturity. I think to be mature, we need a lot of knowledge. But having that knowledge doesn't make us so. For example, think of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. The Pharisees, the Sadducees. Can you chant all 150 psalms from memory? I doubt it. I can't. I can only say a few psalms from memory. They could. If we had had a Bible drill with them, you would lose. I would lose. That knowledge did not equate to spiritual maturity. So, Paul compliments them for what we ought to see in our church, growing faith, increasing love. That is a mark. That is kind of a bottom line of what spiritual maturity is, that my faith is increasing and my love for other people is increasing because of God's work in my heart. Then he moves on and he talks about their afflictions and he's going to talk about God's judgment. Uh, verse 4, as we saw earlier, they boast about them to other churches. They're saying, look, these people hadn't been believers maybe two years now. And look what they're going through. And they're standing firm. And they were, they were giving that report, Paul and Silas and Timothy, as they saw other, other churches. They were telling them about the, the church in Thessalonica. But then we come in verse 5 and following to the judgment of God. And it it tells us here that they're being persecuted, these Christians he's writing to, they're being persecuted is evidence of the coming judgment of God when Christ returns. It says in verse five, God has chosen to build our character, to build the character of his people through difficulties that we experience in this world. We know that Jesus said persecutions and sufferings will come from being his followers. He said that through John 15. We know that Paul said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And in the book of Acts, it says, we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. So the fact that these brothers and sisters were being persecuted was evidence of their faith. It was evidence of God's work. And it was evidence that God's judgment was right. And then in verse 6, he begins to talk about God's vengeance. It says, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Judgment and retribution. The word the word I haven't heard used near as much my entire life until the past two years is the word justice. Justice is a good word, but it's getting a little bit fuzzy today because so many adjectives are put in front of it. We have climate justice, we have environmental justice, we have racial justice, we have international justice, we have ecological justice, we have legal justice, we have social justice, we have individuals and groups calling for and demanding justice. But if we stop for a moment and say, what is justice? If you look in the dictionary, it gives a basic definition. The quality of being fair or just. Now there's a problem with being fair because that's very subjective to who's who's making that determination. But it's the quality of being fair or just. God is just. That's what the scriptures tell us. God is just. His nature is justice. I say that based on Deuteronomy 32.4, where it says this about God, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. And then in 2 Chronicles 19, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be careful what you do, for there is no injustice with the Lord our God, or partiality, or taking bribes. God is completely fair. God will act with complete justice, it tells us here, when he punishes sinners. And it's not going to be comforting what we're getting ready to read. or or see of how he does that, but he only punishes after providing a way for people not to be punished. One day God will pay back trouble to those who trouble his people. One day God will afflict those who afflict his people. God will see to it that those who inflicted persecution and affliction and suffering, they will receive much worse. Not only will he punish evildoers, he will give relief to those who are troubled. So, what does God want us to know? Well, know that your sufferings are strengthening you, making you ready for Christ's kingdom. But also gain relief from the fact that one day everyone will stand before God. And at that time, wrongs will be righted and justice will be meted out. And judgment will be pronounced and evil will be terminated. Now, this doesn't sound very Christian, does it? You read this passage and you think, wait a minute. Paul is comforting them with the thought that God's going to punish your afflict- those who are afflicting you. He's going to punish your oppressors. Well, that's what it says. I was talking to a person one time and I mentioned this and and like many people day, the subject of hell came up and the person said, I don't believe in hell. And I said, why not? And he said, because God is a God of love and I don't think he would do that. And I said, so you don't believe in justice. No, that's not what I said. I was like, no, that's what it is, what you're saying. Do you know that? Only two out of three murders in the U.S. are solved. So a third of those families and relatives and close friends that have a person murdered, I mean, experienced one of their family members murdered, not had a murder, they live with whoever did this has never been caught and never been brought to justice. How would you like to think, and it will always be that way? So I made the comment to the person, I don't think I could live thinking there's no justice after this life, which means there has to be a hell. Does that mean we should always desire our own vengeance? No. We're to use the legal system, and the government bears a sword. That's what it tells us in Romans, and one of the implications of that. We're to do what we can. And there are some people here, I would guess, in a crowd this size, that you were terribly abused. Maybe you are being terribly abused. Maybe you were as a child. Maybe you were by another person. Maybe you were in a school. Maybe someone stole from you. And they, got, they were vindicated in some way, though they were still guilty. And you still suffered the loss. Maybe they ruined your name. Maybe you were lied about. And there's never been, deep down, justice. So God tells us in Romans not to repay evil for evil. We don't go out and make justice ourselves beyond what we can do legally and what the law can do. But he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. Okay, but that isn't all. Then it says, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God is going to bring justice. There will be justice one day, complete justice. Not politically, not based on who happened to have the power at that time. God will bring justice. He will make it right. And even to their oppressors. Now, he goes on, when will this happen? Verse seven, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Well, what will this judgment be like? Verse 9 basically says, At Christ's return, there will be only two groups of people. Those who belong to Christ and those who do not. There's no middle ground. There's no third group. Those who belong to Christ and those who do not. Those who do not belong to him have no hope. Verse 9 says, they will suffer, it uses these words, the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. They will be separated from God, all of the goodness of God, away from him forever. It's eternal. It's not annihilation. It's not a one-time destruction and then the person's soul is no more. It is enduring. It is not temporary. The scary part there says away from the presence of the Lord. Do you know, as a, if you're a US citizen, I assume most of you are here, not everyone, then you and I, if we've grown up here, we, we take for granted so many legal benefits that we have. The right to vote, the right to seek state employment or federal employment. You can apply for college financial support if you need it, scholarships as a student. You can apply for a US passport, which is one of the most important documents in the world. You can become an elected US official. You can apply for certain government benefits. And then there are practical benefits we live with every day. We have freedom to travel. We have fire departments and law enforcement and public works and utilities and clean water and electricity. And we have medical care. And it's very easy to take these things for granted until you go somewhere where you do not have those. One of the trips to Haiti, I was riding in the front of the SUV with uh, Donnie Saint-Germain was driving. And uh, that's a very scary thing to do if you've been in a country like that. There's one rule of the road, and that's the horn. That's it. And we were going on this highway through this small city. We were north of Port-au-Prince going around the the big bay there where Port-au-Prince is. We were coming to Port-au-Prince. We're driving along what seemed about 70 or 80 miles an hour. There are people walking on the sides of the street. The, the, the uh, system is you and people will move over like this, and the car would whiz by what seemed to be about three inches from them. And I'm, I'm in the front, and you learn pretty quickly just to stare down at the floorboard in the car you know, at, at what we're seeing. But I said to Donnie, Donnie, if somebody's in a car wreck out here, is there an ambulance service? And he just said no, kind of smiled. Liam, stupid American. No, 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 Chip. There's no. And uh, I said, so what happens? He said, well, if someone's in a car wreck, you just hope the people that live nearby will come and help you. I thought, Phew, thank the Lord, I live in the United States. I mean, that we take these things for granted. God gives blessings to all of us: the sunshine, the air we breathe, our hearts to beat talking to another person, compassion from others, compassion to others. Millions of blessings every day that we don't even notice. You know what hell is? Away from the presence of God, away from all of those things. No more. That's the way he describes the punishment that will be for those. Now, lest I sound like well, Chip, you sure are us and them. You seem pretty confident that the punishment's only going to be for these murderers and people out there. Listen, this is for all of us. God warns all of us. The wages of sin is death. All of us that have broken his laws in thought, word, or action. We all qualify. So the question is not whether, well, God says, I'm going to punish that one, but I've decided not to punish that one. No. I get punished but the punishment is what's on this table that Jesus who lived perfectly he's punished in my place he's punished as my substitute his record achieved in his body of perfect obedience is imputed to me and his death exemplified with the wine where he shed his blood is in my place the death I deserve so God punishes sin across the board it's just a question who receives that punishment And he offers that to all of us. Let's pray together. Our Father, these are weighty matters. They're heartbreaking matters. We pray you'd give us the sober-mindedness and seriousness to understand, and yet at the same time the joy as we anticipate the return of Christ. ask now your presence as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen.